This morning we're looking at James 1, starting in verse 12, going through verse 18. And James is continuing his topic from the previous week. We started off the book of James in verses 1 through 11. Uh, James introduces the idea of trials to us. And today he kind of talks to us a little bit more about trials, but also uh, kind of contrasting a bit with the idea of temptation. And, <coughs> excuse me. And then last week when we talked about trials, we said that James starts it off in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so this first portion that James kind of talks to us, he talks about how in life we're going to fall into trials. We're going to experience difficulties in life, that things that we didn't plan for ourselves to go through a difficult period, but rather we fall into them. And they're of all sorts of types, but then he tells us that when we encounter those things, what our response is to be, not to be self-pity, it's not to be where we're comparing ourselves to other people's situations, but rather he tells us that we should count it all joy, and then he tells us why, because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Some translations say uh, patience. Now, he also goes on to say that, that that steadfastness is not the end result, but rather the end result is that, that that endurance might have its full effect, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what James is really getting at there is he's getting at the idea of us becoming uh, mature. He's getting at the idea that, that we wouldn't be divided with uh, not knowing how to, to process the difficulties of life or go through things in this world, but rather that we would be whole and complete. And that's kind of what we spring into our theme of our book, you know, as we've gotten to the book of James. The theme that we've kind of applied to it is wholehearted. James's desire is that we would be wholehearted. And he says that when we go through trials and respond in the way that God has told us to, that we have joy in trials, that we become uh, that we endure well and we become mature. We become wholehearted in our uh, pursuit of him. And then he goes on to kind of contrast, or give us, gives us a, an exhortation to seek wisdom if we find it, but then he rolls into verse 12 is where we're going to pick up this morning. And what he does is he's continuing the idea of trials and he brings in this other idea of temptation. And, and James here is going to promise a reward for those who successfully endure trials. If you are steadfast, not only will you become mature, but you will have a reward in the midst of that testing. So he starts off in verse 12 uh, with part two of trials. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, when we talk about someone being blessed, or when you kind of read it with that Shakespearean twist, blessed is the man, uh, we kind of have the tendency to real simply equate that with uh, the words happy. And that would be true to a certain extent. Uh, when you are blessed, you are indeed happy. But happiness, we kind of talked about last week, is circumstantial. It, it is involved with the you know, your, your emotions get wrapped up with the circumstances of life, and your happiness will come and go 
with the things that you're going through in life. But, but here, James is speaking of being blessed, and more accurately, what he means is that you will be fulfilled, that you will have a, a joy. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this portion called the Beatitudes, and he goes on to, to tell his, his hearers, he says, uh, you know, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, blessed uh, are those who are persecuted. And he goes and explains these, and he, and he is making this comparison that, that those who are experiencing these things will be blessed because they will inherit the kingdom of God. And he kind of uses this uh, you know, contrast. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And he says, if you are this, you will get this. If you are this, you will get this. And what he's saying is there, if you're persecuted, you're obviously not happy. That's not what he's saying. But you can be fulfilled in the midst of that. Now, James says the way for us to be fulfilled to be blessed is to endure well. Look at back at verse 1. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. If you want to be blessed, you have to remain steadfast. If you want to be fulfilled, you have to endure well under trials. Now here in this passage, just like James uh, notated in verse 2 of chapter 1, trial here refers to any difficulty in life, anything that will threaten uh, your commitment to Christ. Anything um, that is going to, wh- whether it's a, a, a spiritual sort of thing or whether it's a physical sort of thing, all of those things will affect our faithfulness to Christ. It could be sickness, financial problems, grief, you know, like death of a loved one, persecution. But James tells us that if you want to be fulfilled in the midst of going through those things, we have to remain steadfast. We have to endure well. And he tells us that we'll be blessed if we indeed do that. So what is the blessing that he speaks of? Uh, This fulfillment. Now, it's both something in this life, it's a fulfillment in this life, is that we are pleasing the master we talked about how James introduces the book. He says that he's a bondservant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the bondservant's role is to obey, uh, willingly obey his master and to please the master. And, and what James is telling us here is that we'll be blessed, we'll be fulfilled in pleasing the master in this life and in heaven by enduring. Uh, he, he tells us that the blessing is fulfillment and joy in this life, but then he goes on and he says that it is the crown of life in heaven. So it's a, it's a dual kind of blessing here. You will be fulfilled here, and then you will receive the crown of life. Now, when he speaks of a crown there, we're not talking about like this sweet, like kingly kind of diadem crown, not like the diamond or, you know, the jewel-encrusted gold Lord of the Rings kind of style crown. What he's speaking of here is uh, the laurel wreath. It's a, it's a crown of achievement, of one that would go to the victor who, uh, in an athletic event for someone who has endured, who has run the race well to the end and has finished. This is someone who has uh, participated and not given up, but has gone the distance. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 9. He, he says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So Paul is saying there, uh, you know, we need to run our, the, the race of faith. We need to, to chase after Christ in a way that we are going to, to be the victor. Run in a way that you would win, not that you would just finish. Run with all of your heart uh, to excel. And then he says there that you're going to receive this wreath, this laurel wreath, the same type of crown. Later, uh, Paul will also speak in 2 Timothy, when he is finishing his life, you know, he's, this is his last letter, he's writing uh, um, to Timothy, and he's, he's saying, I've fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and that crown that he's speaking of there is this victor's laurel wreath, not like this... Uh, this diadem, he says, the, the crown of righteousness is, is waiting for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul's saying this the same type of wreath that you have to you have to run in a way, you have to finish well. And Paul equates that in his um, in his word there, he says, I've finished the race. Not only should we run in a way that we want to finish, but I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Lastly, in 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So all of these speak of this, this crown of finishing well when you, when you uh, are at uh, or, or before the master. Him who you're seeking to please, you will receive this, this crown, uh, the victor's crown, the laurel wreath. But he calls it the crown of life. James calls, us, calls it that. It's the reward to those who finish well. And Jesus speaks to this most specifically in Revelation 2.10. Make a note of that because it's important. He says, Revelation 2.10, do not fear. This is Jesus speaking to the church of, I believe, Pergamos. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So, note, Jesus knows that they're about to suffer. And he doesn't say, don't worry about it. I'm going to take you out of it. I'm going to remove the suffering. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He knows they're heading into it. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So there's, Jesus knows of the suffering that's about to come. He's allowing it to come. And then look what he says to them. Uh, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He's not saying, like, you're for sure going to die if, when you go through this. He's just saying, live in a way that you don't regard your own life. Be faithful to your master. If you are faithful to, unto death, I will give you the crown of life. It's this faithfulness that Jesus is looking for. The one who, who receives the crown. Now, it is that faithfulness. It is that endurance, that steadfastness that Jesus is talking about here and that James is talking about. But that is not alone what earns the reward. Because there's a lot of people who are really good at persevering and a lot of people who are really good at persevering better than a lot of Christians. However, that is not what earns the reward. That's a portion of it. Enduring trials is not simply, for us, made easier because there's a reward at the end. Like, oh, I can make it through now because I get something at the end at least. That's not just what he's saying. He goes on to say that the only way is that we're going to endure well, the only way that we will receive this crown of life, 
is if we have a deep love for God. He goes on to indicate that the crown of life is only promised to those who love him. So if you endure well for your own purposes, you're not really enduring well. You're only enduring well for your, for your own selfishness. You're not, in, you're not, you're not going through the, these trials and tribulations of life for God's glory. The motivation of these things, of us, let me try that again. Our motivation in trials should be to please the one who holds the crown. So that way, when we stand before Jesus, and then he'll say, you did well done, you, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, and hand us that, that laurel wreath, that crown, the victor's crown of enduring well. We want to delight and please our master. And the thing about trials is that they reveal your priorities. Because we can go through trials, we can experience difficulties of life, but when we go through them, they, real, they, they reveal whether you are going through them that because you love the master well, because you love Jesus. You know, I love how he, he explains it very simply there in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who reigns steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's the promise to those who love God. But when, but when we go through these things, they really reveal in us where our priorities are. They reveal in us how we've designed our lives. Because everyone kind of is curating their own lives, what they want it to look like, what they want other people to see in their lives. You know, you, I, I kind of talked about this before, but you see that when you go on people's Facebooks and you click on like their profile pictures that they selected themselves, not like ones that people tag them in, but like, that's like, here's how I want people in the world to see me, to view me. Everything, it's like, okay, here's how I'm all made up, done up. These are the pictures that I have approved. And when people come to my page and the only ones that they're allowed to see are the profile ones, that's what I want to present as an image. You know, and then we, there's, we kind of do that in our lives with all sorts of things. And James here is, is saying that when we go through trials, they're going to reveal not just that what we've built our life on and how we've designed our, our, our lives, but it reveals the desires of our hearts. And Jesus has to be our chief joy or we will not endure well. He has to be the most important. And even Jesus encourages us to do that. He encourages his disciples to do that in Mark 14. Uh, he, he told them in Mark 14, he says, Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's, he's calling us to, to reorient our priorities upon him and not to be confused about where our allegiance lies when we go through trials. And so he goes on now to explain that and to get into that a little bit more in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So here, it seems like James is making, uh, he, it seems like he has ADD all of a sudden. He's like making a change in topic. He goes from talking about trials and, you know, enduring well. And then he's like, all of a sudden, let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. Um, but here, it's connected to this idea of trials. There's a, there's a close connection, we'll see. Because every trial that you go through, every difficulty in life has an has a, a, a bit of temptation that comes along with it. 
And James is trying to clear up some things for us here. Uh, Let me give you an example. When you're going through a trial, a financial difficulty, let's say, you're going through a, a period where money's tight, maybe you don't have enough money for rent, and in that trial, you have an opportunity to stop and look to the one who is your provider, the giver of all things, the creator of the world, and ask God to provide for you when there wasn't a way. But you also have the tendency to say, well, I don't really trust that God's going to provide for me, so let me figure out everything that I have here that I can do to make this happen. And there's some things in that, you know, there's some wisdom in, like, the Lord giving us assets and things that we can move around to meet our needs. But what James is getting at here is, when people kind of run into these things and they're not rooted in a love for God, all of a sudden it's like, well, I need to make some quick cash. And so you go out and make poor decisions. You know, you steal something from, you know, your work and try to sell it. Or you, you, you know, steal something from somebody's house. Or, you know, rob, you know go out and rob things. Or, um, you know, you just, you just make poor decisions in, in line with your situation because you feel the pressure. And so what James is seeking to kind, of, to kind of demonstrate here is that the trials that you go through will bring temptations, but then he's, going to, he's trying to clear up for us that these temptations are not from God. The trials God allows, Jesus says to these, to these people in Revelation 2, I know that you're, you're suffering, I know that you're about to suffer, I know you're going to go through it, but then he encourages them to endure well, not to give in to temptation. He's not the one tempting them, but he is the one allowing them to experience the trials of life. And so when James says here in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, what he's referring to, uh, some, of, some translations will say use tempted and trials uh, interchangeably, both in verse 2 and in verse 13 here. So Verse 2 is speaking of trials, the external difficulties of life, the things that, circumstances of life that you're going through. Verse 13, when it talks about temptation here, it's referring to an inner enticement to sin. And we know, you know, in your life, I'm sure that you guys know plenty of people who've abandoned their walk with God when they've gotten under pressure, when they've experienced difficulties and trials of life. And it's like, this is too hard. This is not what I signed up for. This isn't worth it. They gave in to temptation when they should have been enduring in their faith and maturing in their walk with the Lord. And so James here, he's going to teach us where the blame for temptation comes from and where it does not come from. So the first part, where does tempta- where temptation does not come from? Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by Uh, with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James tells us that temptation does not come from God, and then he cites two reasons uh, why. Reason number one, he says, God cannot be tempted with evil. The nature of God, his, his attributes, he is so pure and holy that it is impossible for him to be tempted by evil. He, he, he can't be, you know, persuaded because his nature won't even allow that into, uh, he won't allow evil into his presence. And that's the, whole, uh, that's the whole thing about Christ's work. Because our sinfulness could not be 
in God's presence, because we couldn't be there, Jesus was sent to make a way so that way we could then have Christ's righteousness and then be again in the presence of God. So God's love towards us, and James is going to connect this at the end, his love for us, his demonstration of that love is a, uh, it's a mark of his generous giving to us in how he has demonstrated that upon the cross. So the first thing he says, God cannot be tempted with evil because God's nature is so pure and holy. He can't be enticed to that. And then the second thing he says is that he himself tempts no one. So because God is so holy, so pure, his deeds and his actions and attitudes and thoughts, his will is so perfect that he has no desire for his people, his creation, to be put in a place to, you know, sin, to embrace evil. It would be really difficult to, to see that happening if the whole point uh, of, like, we were separated from God by sin, and then he sends his son to pay the price for us so we won't sin, but then he makes it so we sin. That doesn't make sense, is what James is saying here. He's appealing to God's nature, his attributes, his holiness, his character. He's saying that God isn't the one that brings temptation, because isn't that kind of the case when we kind of fall into trials? There's an opportunity for us to be tempted in that way to blame God. When you go through the difficulties of life, you have that potential desire to be like, what in the world is God doing here? Have frustration at God because of the things that you're going through in life, the difficulties and the external circumstances, the trials. You know, oftentimes we are tempted even to sin against God in that we accuse him of wrongdoing towards us. What are you doing, Lord? Because this isn't how I planned it. And so it's something that we have to, um, to really be aware of. Now, there is a difference here between, we kind of talked about, between testing and temptation. Uh, the, the, the trials of life, the, the things that we are to endure, that he's allowed us to endure. God does uh, allow testing, but he doesn't create temptations to lure us into. Uh, let me give you an example. We kind of talked about one already with, uh, I forget what, what it was we talked about, but let me give you another example. Um, the, the one that I was thinking of, we talked about a little bit on Friday, about God giving Solomon wisdom. In that, uh, in First in Kings 3, God comes to Solomon and asks him, you know, what do you want? I'm going to give you whatever you want. And Solomon could ask for wisdom uh, he could ask for riches, he could ask for fame, and he could ask for anything. And he asks for wisdom, and he says, I will, and, um, the Lord responds to him and says, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will have never been anyone like you, nor will, the, will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. So Solomon there before the Lord, he's given this opportunity to choose whatever he wants, and he chooses wisdom, which is awesome. But then the Lord says, not only am I going to give you wisdom, because you didn't ask for wealth, and you didn't ask for this fame, I'm going to give you that as well. 
Now, that's really nice of the Lord to do that. But then also, those things, uh, fame and, and wealth, those things are also things that will end up tempting Solomon. And he will have to exercise that wisdom. He will have to use that wisdom. And the Lord will, will in turn, have Solomon be tested by that wealth and fame to see whether his wisdom has become an idol to him or whether he is still trusting in the Lord, the giver of wisdom. And so it's a trial of life. It's a, it's a test that he will go through. And in there, he has an opportunity to sin, to tempt. He'll be tempted by wealth. He'll be tempted by his fame. But it's not necessarily God's, God's not tempting him. God has provided these things that could be entirely good. Wealth can be used wisely and stewarded well. But it's whether or how you respond to it and your view of it. Another example, God tested Abraham's belief in his promise to give him a son. And this test that Abraham goes through, uh, you know, it's the, the very famous passage in Genesis 22 where God says, Oh, Abraham, take your son up onto uh, Mount Moriah and bring, you know, wood and, and, and uh, head up there and I'll, you know, sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham, in faith, goes up there. He does it. He builds this altar, puts the wood out, and he binds his son and puts him upon the altar, just as the Lord has told him to. And then in Genesis 22, as Abraham's about to kill his son, sacrifice him, he says, the Lord says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, the fact of the matter is, is that is, in, in that passage is that God is testing Abraham to reveal within him whether he believes that God is going to be true to his word, that Abraham will indeed have a son, an heir, that will continue on and will, will uh, start just this uh, plentiful nation that God has promised to him, or whether he's going to fall back and say, no, I'm not going to sacrifice my son. You gave him to me, and I'm going to do what I want with him because you told me this was going to happen. But Abraham, trusting that even if this son would be killed, that God would raise him back to life in fulfillment of his promise. The, the testing is about God's character and your belief in God being who he says he is. It's not necessarily just about taking you through these things and putting you through the ringer. It's about God showing you how consistent and faithful he is to his promise. And so things start to fall apart, and it makes our world fall apart, and we freak out. But they're to point us back to that God is the always constant and unchanging one. They reveal, these trials, they reveal what we've built our life on. And it's interesting because in here, on Sunday morning, it's like usually, you know, pretty laid back and we're all hanging out and it's easy to kind of sit here with everybody and you know yeah we've all built our life upon upon Christ and um, you know we're all here to worship but on Sunday morning what you worship is not it's not just best demonstrated on Sunday morning it's what happens in your words and behavior throughout the week that expose what you've built your life upon and if you're going through a trial, and like we kind of talked about on Friday, you know, it's said that you're either coming out of a trial, in a trial, or about to head into a trial, as the Lord takes us through the refining process in life. 
And as we go through those things, they expose the areas of our life that, that need to be refined. And if, if we're in trials and we're angry, we're bitter, we're joyless, it means that we are creating idols over whatever it is that we're losing. Whatever it is that we can't control and that we're seeking to control, those things, they expose those idols within our lives. And so James here, he tells us that this temptation, it doesn't come from God. It comes, uh, uh, this, this temptation comes about when we have the impulse to recover whatever we've lost. When we're trying to protect that, instead of trusting the Lord, uh, we try to recover it. And James wants us to understand that, that in this text that temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God does not have that impulse to sin because his character is not that, he doesn't have the impulse to also go and tempt man into sin. For us, that's not the case. Um, you know, we're naturally sinful and have an issue there. We'll talk about that in a second. But when God tests us, when God brings us through these trials, he does it so that we may pass through them and inherit the blessings of the trial. Not so that we might fail the trial. Remember, it's not to test our, the genuineness of our faith, but to refine our character. It's to refine our trust in him. Now, James goes on and he tells us where trials do come from. He's told us where they don't come from. And now in verse 14, uh, he goes on, read with me. But each person, when he is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he tells us there that we have this desire. When each person is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When he speaks of desire there, it's not necessarily a bad thing, okay? Make a note of that. There's a a desire that he's speaking of that's not necessarily a bad desire, but it's how you respond to it and what you do with it. And, And then he speaks about how we're lured in, though, by our desires, And what James is doing here is contrasting our desires and God's desires. So you might desire to, uh, you might desire a good thing. Uh, For instance, you might desire to get married. But if you spend your life and and your your time chasing that down when God is trying to work something else out within you, that can be a sinful desire that's worked out. It's It's a righteous desire, but if you pursue it when God's not telling you to pursue it or not leading you into that, then it becomes a sinful idol that we're chasing after. So these right desires, there there could be healthy, good, uh, righteous desires, but when we place them above what God is doing in our lives, then they become sinful things. And that's what James is uh, getting at. That's why in... uh, That's why Jesus tells us, you know, that we ought to pray, you know, not our will, but God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's... It's about seeking God's will. When we talk about prayer, often we kind of talk about the idea that we want to figure out what God's doing, not what we want to do. Because we can come up with a lot of good ideas and we can come up with, you know, things that, you know, every awesome leadership book and church growth book and, you know, 
community group book. There's like lots of books about all sorts of things, and we can f- come up with all sorts of great ideas about how we ought to see things done, and this is how you're supposed to do it. But if those ideas aren't God's ideas and what God is, wants to do, then we find ourselves superseding God's work. And so what we want to do in our prayer, what we want to do in our lives is discover what God is doing and follow that. That means when you're planning out your life, when you're planning post-college, when you're planning out you know, your career, you're thinking about switching jobs, you're thinking about moving to a city or whatever, you want to discover what God is doing there, not what you just think that you're doing, because the purpose is to please the master. So you want to find out what God's doing and then join him in doing that, and then you will be in his will. And so he tells us here that we want to have, uh, we have desires but often they're sinful desires because we're sinful people. He's, he uses this idea of our desires, we're tempted by our desires, and he's, when we have wrong desires, when we have desires that aren't the Lord's desires, we're lured and enticed by them. We have this magnetism to them where we can't escape, where all of a sudden, you know, it's like you want it so bad that you have to make a move, a change. You have to, you have to do whatever you have to do to get your desire and you jump over what God is trying to do. And what, what he says here is that those desires that were lured and enticed by, by they, those things, uh, when temptation and our desire come together, it produces sin. It, it, and, and here's the thing. What he's trying to do is contrast, again, our desires and God's desires. And, and he's trying to communicate that because, you know, we are naturally sinful, but God is holy. And so we want to have God's desires. We want, to, we want to understand what he's doing, but naturally we can't do that. And that's what he says here. He says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We naturally have these wrong desires, these sinful desires. But we need to have correct desires. And that's what Jesus, uh, or that's what Paul has told us in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we can't just say, oh, I'm going to change my mind and have these new desires. We need to become a new creation and to have our minds renewed, Romans 12. We need to have these things, our minds transformed so that our desires are not our own desires, but they are the desires of our master. Now, James shifts metaphors here to describe just the crazy havoc that comes about when we give in to these things. He says in verse 15, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James uses this analogy of birth and a maturing to illustrate the destructive nature of giving in to temptation. And he notes here, when temptation and desire come together, they produce sin. Note that, okay? When temptation and desire come together, they produce sin. It's, it's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to be tempted, but when those things come together, when you're tempted and you have a desire, when you're tempted to have your desires over the Lord's desires, that's when it, it, you know, when you give in to that, it becomes sin. 
It's only a problem then. You know, we see that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Right after he was baptized, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days, and Satan there tempted him with all sorts of things. And Jesus experienced that temptation of life. The, you know, he experienced, you know, the, uh, Satan brought him up onto the temple and showed him the kingdoms of the earth, you know, and, and offered that to him. He gave him food when he, he offered him food when he was, when he was hungry. He, he appealed to all these areas, but yet in that temptation, Jesus' desire did ne- never m- met with that temptation, He rejected that temptation of the enemy. And he said, you know, my flesh will not have its way. I will not give in to that temptation. I want to be wholly dedicated to my mission here and pleasing the master, the one who sent me here. And so Jesus didn't give in to the temptation. But when we do, it creates sin. And when sin grows, it tells us, it brings forth death. It starts off innocent. It's, oh, it's just like a little desire and a little temptation. But then all of a sudden, that sin is birthed and it grows quickly and matures into death. James later tells us in in, uh, chapter 4, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we have to remember that. Just as Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, as as he... fought off the enemy with the word of God, so we must do that as well. We must resist the devil and he will flee from us. We have, also have to remember that we're not alone in it. Hebrews twelve eighteen tells us, for because Jesus, he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So when you are in the midst of temptation, when you're in a trial and you're going through it, difficulty of life, and there's a temptation before you, We can appeal, we can cry out to Jesus who was tempted, who suffered as well. And he was tempted so that he might help us when we are being tempted. But what is also helpful in enduring temptation is remembering the end. It's hard to resist sin when you just kind of think about the beginning. It's like, oh, just a little. But when you think immediately that the end of what I'm about to do is death, it's a more in-your-face, explicit type of decision. When you think that you're going to let desire and temptation come together, we want to equate those things coming together immediately in death. Not just in this real nice, like, well, you know, I'll do this just for a little bit and kind of get over it and then rein it back in. But temptation and desire equals death right away. We want to bring that to the forefront of our minds. And, and, and more than we want to, to bring that to our minds, we want to also bring to our minds that Jesus was already put to death on our behalf for the things that we have already sinned in. And we want to live because he has given us life. We want to rebuke uh, those temptations. We want to resist them. Now, when you're dealing with temptation, when you're dealing with falling into these sorts of trials and and the temptations that come along with it, oftentimes, uh, as James has told us, we're looking for a maturity. We're looking for a wholeheartedness. 
And the way that we kind of tend to operate as Christians is that if you're not tempted very often, that means you're mature. You know, if, if it's, you know, if you're, if you're going through life and you're not tempted very much, that equals mature. Like, oh, it's just never a problem for you. You know, we kind of do that. We compare ourselves to others. You know, going through life, having a trial, having a difficulty, doesn't seem like that's ever an issue for so-and-so. But what James wants us to see is it's not the, the, the infrequency of temptation, because we're tempted all the time, and the more that you grow in faith, the more that you're tempted. It's the infrequency in which you give in to that temptation that produces uh, or that marks the maturity of a believer. You're tempted a lot, but you don't give in. You fight it. It's not that you're never tempted, but that you purpose to please the master and then you don't give in to temptation. That is a mark of maturity within the believer. Then he wraps up in verse 16 and 17. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James comes back around and mentions that not only is God, not the cause of temptation, but he's the generous giver that we saw earlier in chapter 1. And because our heart has evil desires, because we're lured away from sin, because we experience, you know, this this inner selfishness, self-centeredness, how then are we to keep loving God? He's told us already earlier, count it all joy that when you fall into various trials, because those things end up in your maturing, but then right after, because then it's like, oh great, how do I do that? And then right after that, in verse 5, he tells us, if you lack wisdom in how to do it, here's, ask of God who wants to give. Here he's doing the same thing. He says, when, when you go through trials, don't give in to temptation. And then we ask the question, well, great, how does that happen? We're like, and then he reminds us that God wants to give us, again, what we need to, to endure that. He says, In verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. So we need to remember that when we're faced with these temptations, when we're faced with that and we're asking God for help, we we want to remember that every good and perfect gift is from above. Now, that seems like just a real flowery thing, like God wants to give us awesome things, you know? God's just like this ultimate Santa who, like, has awesome gift wrapping. That's what it kind of sounds like. But what James is getting at here is he's saying every good thing that we need is in him and from him. Remember, he's told us that the crown of life is is promised to those who love him. He's the key. Now he's told us to resist temptation, not to give in, not to let our sinful desire and the temptation conceive in sin. And when you have a problem doing that, then we want to ask the Lord for wisdom, ask for what we need to get out of that. And he tells us that everything that we need is in him and from him. The good gift that God gives, this generous giver that we have, God as our Father, his gifts are perfect. What that means is they fit our need exactly. What we need is what he has provided You're going through a temptation and you have need to get to that. You ask the Lord and he has a good gift 
a perfect gift to fit that moment, that specific trial, that specific temptation. His gift is literally perfect. We tend to think of like perfect as in such like a real abstract term where it's like, oh, it's flawless. And in a sense, his gift to us is flawless. But his gift meets our exact need. It would be like, and this is like a way less scaled down example, but let me, let me roll with you guys on this. It would be like every single time, you know, you're kind of running errands or in your house and doing a bit of cleaning and you're like, oh, this would be so much easier, you know, if I had this tool. And then all of a sudden, like, at your door, there's a little gift and it's like, here's the exact tool. Oh, and you're cleaning something else. Or you're, you're working on your car and you're like, man, this thing is broken. Like, I need a new part for this. And before you can even think of anything... For no reason gifts, like all of a sudden, the exact part shows up. Oh, that's what you need? Here it is, exactly. I'm the perfect giver. I know exactly what you need every time, and I will provide the exact part, the exact tool that you need for that moment. It's a, it's a four, it's, a, it's a almost like a four no reason gift. It's not like God, uh, it's not like Christmas or birthday where you're expecting something, but because God's love for us is perfect because he sees us when we are in our need. He's providing just that perfect gift at that perfect moment when we have it, when we're like, this would be so much easier if we had. And he's like, before you can finish, there it is. The Lord wants to provide for our need in that way. Now, let me also note that he provides for our need, not for our want. So just because you want something, that's not what you're going to get. He's going to give you what you need because he gives you a perfect gift, not an imperfect gift. We often want gifts, but they're often imperfect. He's giving us what we need exactly. James then describes God as this giving God. He finishes in verse 17. He says that these gifts come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is changeless. There's, there's no way in that we will come to God in, in his holy, perfect nature and find that he is unwilling, unable, uh, you know, to give us what we need. His, his nature, his character, his love for us is perfect. And just as God wanted to give us wisdom in verse 5 with that singular intent, here he wants to give us that same way. He wants to give us the gifts that we need in that moment with that direct focus. And I love how James contrasts it here because he demonstrates that when, when he says that God is the... Uh, these gifts come down from the Father of lights. He's kind of appealing to creation there. He's, he's saying that God is the Father of all. And what he's doing is he's separating that God is the creator and there is a creation. And he's contrasting that God is different than creation. Creation, like the sun and the moon, they change with the time of day. There's shadows on the moon sometimes, and there's, there's light on the moon sometimes. There's, on our earth, we see those things with the times and seasons. But what James is saying here is God never changes his position. He is unlike creation. He is the creator. His desire is to give to his children. And then he gives us an example of God's gift to us. He gives us an example of how good and how generous he is in verse 18. The last thing we'll wrap up with. Of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits 
of his creatures. So James here, he has a little throwback to John 3, referencing Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus. He talks about Jesus is there speaking to Nicodemus about being born again. Uh, He says to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That same phrase shows up here, although it looks a little bit different in our language. In verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. James here is making it plain in quoting Jesus, uh, that, that instance, that he's speaking of the idea of salvation here. He's emphasizing God's love for us as the giver, this generous giver meeting our need when we have need, when we are tempted to continue in sin. He uses an example here to show us that. He says... Of his own will, he brought us forth. What he's saying is, God's, it was God's work. It was his complete, uh, he, he was the author of salvation. He was the one who did the work. When you had need, he provided. You didn't even know you had need, and he gave you. He gave to you. Verse, uh, or it says he's brought us forth by his word of truth. First uh, Peter 1, verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So we're brought forth, we're brought to salvation by the living and, word of God, uh, living and abiding word of God. He then goes on in uh, Ephesians 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So when James says that we were brought forth, He's speaking of the new birth, as Jesus spoke of in John 3. And he's saying that we were brought forth by the gospel, the word of truth. We're we're brought to salvation by Christ's work on our behalf. Now, when we were in need, God gave us the perfect gift that matched our need. We needed righteousness, and there was nothing else that could provide righteousness for us except for the blood of his Son. And because he's that perfect, giving, generous God who gives to our need, not to our want, he gave us the perfect gift that met our need so that we could have Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And then he calls us, lastly, that we're the first fruits of his creation, of his creatures. What he's doing there is he's referencing the Old Testament law. Uh, This was a law that required the presentation of, um, in in season of produce with uh, agriculture and and livestock and things like that. What what it would be would, would be this law that required the people to give the best and the first portion, like, and really like a small portion in, uh, in comparison, the small, a small portion and the best of their crop or livestock to the Lord. And the purpose was to, 
there was a couple reasons. The purpose was to acknowledge that everything belonged to God as he was the creator. He was the one who provided for them. But then secondly, it was a reminder that the Lord keeps his promises to his people. So you're giving out of the best of yours to God and he is providing for you. It's a reminder that God keeps his promises to his people. You know, he promised to bring them out of slavery. He did that. He promised to give them a, a, a land and provide for them. He did that. And so what Jesus is saying, or James is saying here, is that the Lord brings us out of salvation, out of his own will, to be a demonstration to all that he keeps his promises. So that when we are going through trials, we're, go we're going through temptation, that we are a demonstration. Our salvation is a demonstration that God indeed keeps his promises. We're an example of God's generous and faithful giving and that he will not withhold in our time of need. And so that's what we want to consider when we think about experiencing these things when we think about going through trials we think about going through difficulties of life when we think about temptation we want to remember that those things will come but that god is the generous giver who will provide in our need for every moment for every situation with a tailored gift for that time so that we might not fail in in our trial but that we might succeed and be blessed, that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Those things come about so that we might be more refined, that we might be a more useful tool in his hands. And there's more work that he'll, he'll work on us in as we go, go further into the book of James. There's a, there's a lot of stuff to come that he'll kind of speak of, chipping away our, our, our character and refining us so that at the end will be marked as complete, mature believers who are, who are able to be used by him. And so let's ask him to do that in us, to, to work these things out, to give us wisdom. Let's pray for these things together. Lord, we're thankful for your word and, and that you've given us instruction so that we might go through trials well, that you know we're going to go through the difficulties of life and not just respond in a way where we are blaming you, but, Lord, that we recognize that you are the giver and that you've already given us life and salvation in your Son. And that we have the ability, Lord, to cry out to you and that you will generously and lovingly give to us in our need. So we pray that you would continue to work in us, Lord, to trust you. Remind us, Lord, that we are that first fruit. So when we look at each other, Lord, that we will be reminded that you keep your promises. You've brought us out, Lord, of our own slavery. And we need you. And so, Lord, call us back into reliance upon you. And we're thankful, Lord, that your word is perfect and trustworthy. Lord, and that we can look to you in time of need. And so, Lord, cause us uh, just to res reflect and worship now, to respond, Lord, to what you've done. We love you. Amen.